Hi, this is Ted Wright, Executive Director of CrossExamine.org, and I want to invite you to come out this summer, August the 8th to the 10th, to Charlotte, North Carolina, to our Cross-Examined Instructors Academy. This year is going to be fantastic. We're going to have Jay Warner Wallace, Greg Kokel, our own Dr. Frank Turek, and many others. If you want to learn more about this, you can go to www.crossexamine.org and click on CIA to learn more about it and also to apply. Nehemiah chapter 2. Um, we're covering, again, a whole chapter, and so there's, there is uh, a lot to cover here, but there is tons of application in this chapter. This may be uh, the chapter with the most application in this entire book, and with that said, it was hard to squeeze everything that I wanted to apply into one message. What type of person do you guys think God is most capable of working with and through? Now, I hope you realize that's a loaded question. Uh, but as you know, if there is any place uh, or anything where you're most likely to find out about a person, about their experience, uh, their qualifications, their interests, uh, you know, what makes them the right person for the job, the place to look would be a resume. A resume. So if you are going to draw up a resume and fill out an application uh, and hand it into God for him to, apply, you know, to do his work through you and with you, uh, what would it say? Uh, and maybe while you're thinking about that, I, I have a list of some kind of funny, odd things that were found on uh, resumes and job applications, a list that uh, I came across this week, and I wanted to share a couple of them with you. But keep in mind, uh, these are all supposedly real, uh, based on what I read. Um, one person answered the question, why are you interested in this position, by saying, to keep my parole officer from throwing me back in jail. <laughs> One person, when listing their work experience, wrote that they were a stalker, S-T-A-L-K-E-R, not a stalker, S-T-O-C-K-E-R. Everybody wants to hire you know, their, their own personal stalker, right? Um, one person handed in a resume, uh, and they had apparently had it proofread by somebody because in bright red ink, something on the resume was circled with a note in the margin that said, you don't want a, pr- a prospective employer to know this about you. <laughs> One person's resume bragged that they were consistently tanked as the top sales producer for new accounts. <laughs> tanked, not ranked. Uh, one person's resume said that they received a plague for salesperson of the year. Um, obviously not for best speller of the year. Um, finally, in the reference section of one, of, uh, of one application, a person wrote, None, I've left a path of sheer destruction in the path behind me. <laughs> Supposedly, that's real. You know, something tells me that um, some of these people, if these are real, uh, that some of these people didn't really have any legitimate interest in getting the job, you know, becoming gainfully employed, but they were filling it out either as a joke or maybe for some other reason. I know, like for receiving welfare, you know, you have to say that you've applied for jobs, and so maybe, you know, maybe that's uh, why they filled it out the way they did. Why else would someone say that they have left a path of sheer destruction uh, behind them? 
Well, Nehemiah didn't have a path of destruction behind him. He had one ahead of him. Uh, He didn't exactly have a resume, but he did bring a petition to God. The opening chapter showed us that the people who were living in Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple, trying to rebuild the temple, they were distressed and they were vulnerable because they had no protection, just like the city was distressed and vulnerable because it had no protection, because the wall that was around the city, which is the first line of defense in uh, ancient civilization, the wall had been destroyed and the gates had been burned. And so now Nehemiah's resume would say things like, hey, I, I was the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes. Yeah, compete with that. But it wouldn't have said, I am an expert wall builder. And that's something that I can probably personally relate to way too well. You know, if there's an argument to be refuted or challenged, I can usually get the job done. If you want to know something about a cult or why we believe what we believe, you know, I can help you out with that. Uh, If you need help understanding a passage of scripture, that's one of my favorite things in the world to do. Uh, But if you need something that involves a tool, I mean any tool, even a screwdriver, call Kurt or call Craig, because I am not the man for the job. I am so technically illiterate, it's, it's a joke. Um, so given Nehemiah's background, what would make him think that he is the man for the job? Why should he be the one to go and rebuild the wall around Jerusalem? I mean, there has got to be somebody with more wall-building experience than Nehemiah. So what makes him the man for the job? Why would we think that he is the man for the job? Simple. He had the heart that the job required. Now, Nehemiah's immediate response upon learning from his brother Hanani that the city and the people were distressed and vulnerable was to express his heartbreak, his sorrow to God, and to ask God, to pray to God that God would use him, but first to grant him favor with the king, because he was going to need the king's permission to accomplish the task at hand. And what were the odds? I mean, if you were in Nehemiah's shoes, what were the odds that the king would approve such a request? I mean, it's clear that Nehemiah didn't think that the chances were very good, and probably for good reason, and that being the cupbearer has to be a person that the king trusts with his life. And you can't just establish that in a moment. You can't establish that in a day or a week, maybe even a month. I mean, it takes years to establish that kind of trust. And, I mean, especially for a king. How many people can a king possibly put that kind of trust in? So the odds of the king giving, uh, conceding, giving Nehemiah what he's asking for seems slim. But Nehemiah has prayed. He, he poured his heart out before the Lord, and with that done, he effectively put the ball in the Lord's court. And that is all a person can do at the beginning of a calling. They can pray and they can wait. Wait for an answer. Wait for doors to be opened up. And I imagine that every single one of us has probably been in a situation like this before where we've asked God for something, and then we've got to wait. It doesn't get answered on the spot. It doesn't even get answered the next day necessarily. We just got to wait. And so we're waiting for an opportunity. We're waiting for a door to open. We're waiting for an answer to our prayer. And sometimes we wait and wait and wait and wait. And Nehemiah prayed and waited for four months. Four months. And that that might seem like a long time. That's actually pretty quick. It's not that long. What exactly was he waiting for? 
he was waiting for the right opportunity to present itself for him to approach King Artaxerxes. But know this, wasting time, waiting time, excuse me, waiting time is never wasting time if that time is spent in prayer and personal preparation, preparing our hearts. And I imagine that it was during this four months, during this period, that uh, while Nehemiah was waiting, he figured out the best and the most humble way to approach the king. Or maybe he didn't, as we're going to see today. Uh, But that's where we pick up in our study of the book of Nehemiah as we take a look at chapter 2. We'll start with the first couple verses, Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Here we read, And it came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? And we know he's not sick because he's handing the cup off to the king. If he was getting sick, he wouldn't do that. So the king says, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. So the king puts two and two together. He says, you've never been sad in my presence, so this is obviously something going on in your heart. Now, kings don't like to be around sad people, especially back then, uh, you know, where, where they were more like uh, staunch dictators. I mean, if you had your choice, uh, would you rather be around happy and joyful people, or would you rather be around sad and sorrowful people? I mean, that seems like a no-brainer, right? If, if you really got to choose one or the other, uh, who wouldn't want to be around happy and joyful people? Because we all know through experience that the mood of the people that we're constantly around will have an effect, have an impact on our mood as well. If you're hanging out with somebody who's always positive, chances are some of that's going to rub off on you and, and you're going to be positive. If you're, if you're hanging around with somebody who's always depressed and gloomy and woe is me, oh, life is horrible, that's going to rub off on you too. So we all know that the mood of the people that we're with is going to rub off on us. And so kings don't like to be around negative people. So the first thing that Nehemiah did was wait But secondly, and maybe just as importantly, he had to trust. He had to trust that God had heard his prayer, first of all. He had to trust that God had answered his prayer by going before him and softening up the king's heart so that when the moment presented itself, the king would grant favor. But notice that he has no reason to think at this moment, at this given moment in time that he's recording, there is nothing that would lead us to think that the king's heart has been softened. Nothing. There's no evidence of that at all. There was no evidence one way or the other, which is why Nehemiah says that he was very much afraid when the king calls him out on his very obvious sadness. Now, Nehemiah's uh, prayer in chapter 1 happened in the month of Kislev, which is between November and December on our calendars, uh, but it doesn't take place, this, this chapter doesn't take place until Nisan, which is the first, first month of the Babylonian civil calendar, uh, and that takes place in, uh, be- between April and May. So why did he act when he did? Why, why is it now that Nehemiah finally asks the king, after these four months, why does he now act? It's because the window of opportunity was open, although Nehemiah himself didn't open this window, and I don't think he knew that the window was about to be opened. We have no reason, based on the text, to think that Nehemiah had planned on this particular day to talk to the king, but the king initiates the conversation. 
The king sees that Nehemiah's heart is broken. The king sees that he can't hide it. Nehemiah can't hide it. And I'm sure that as a king, he knows that sometimes people just got to play the role. They got to put the mask on. But Nehemiah's sadness is so great, he can't hide it. And so he asks, what's going on? And bingo, God has opened a window. So whether Nehemiah was ready or not, he better go through the window. And you know, maybe the king, recognizing that, that Nehemiah had never been sad in his presence before, thought that there was uh, you know, some kind of impending danger upon his kingdom or his palace that he needed to be filled in on. Whatever the case, the king wants to know why Nehemiah is so deeply troubled. And Nehemiah tells us that he is scared, that he is afraid. Why? Well, because, first of all, it wasn't uncommon for a person to be either thrown out of the king's presence, that's the best case scenario, uh, imprisoned, or maybe even executed if they didn't put on their happy face for the king, depending on the king's mood and what he felt like doing if somebody was sad in his presence. Secondly, I think it's also because Nehemiah saw that the window of opportunity was opening, and Nehemiah wasn't sure if he was ready to address the king with this issue. Have you ever been there? Where God answers a prayer sooner or maybe, maybe differently. That's probably a lot more common. Differently than you had expected or planned for. You know, God works the same way in our lives, the same exact way in our lives. You know, we pray, and in this age of instant gratification where you can send an email to somebody around the world and boom, it's there in the, you know, faster than a blink of an eye. We want what we want, and we want it now. Tomorrow at the latest. Tomorrow's a little bit late, but tomorrow at the latest. But God, God often waits to answer our prayers until we're not expecting an answer to our prayer. We're not expecting uh, that opportunity to come. The fact that God waits doesn't mean that God can't respond. It doesn't mean that he doesn't want to respond. Scripture teaches us over and over again to be persistent, consistent and persistent with our prayers. Uh, The Apostle Paul said, pray without ceasing. Uh, Jesus told a parable of an unrighteous judge who got sick of being hounded by this widow uh, who was very persistent. And finally, this unrighteous judge granted her request just to get her to shut up already, leave him alone, and follow that up. Jesus follows that up by contrasting a loving and gracious God with this unrighteous, cold-hearted God by saying, you know, now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? So yeah, persistence with prayer. That's what that's all about. Nehemiah prayed persistently and consistently for four months. He prayed, he waited, and now he's got to trust. And let's see what happens. Verses 3 and 4. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. So here we see that Nehemiah is so deeply troubled by the condition of the Jews who were rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem that he can't hide his troubled heart any longer. And so when the king asks, what's going on? Nehemiah is pretty straightforward in his response, even though he knows his life could be at stake here if the king is in a bad mood. He's he's scared for his life, but he's straightforward in his response. You know, none of us likes to be afraid, but the truth of the matter is that without fear, 
you know, we often wouldn't stop. We often wouldn't pause to, uh, to take the steps or to plan the steps that are necessary for accomplishing great things by God's workings. You know, if without fear, we'd act without using an ounce of wisdom or forethought. We'd act without reservation. We'd just, we'd just do what we felt like doing at the moment. But at this point, Nehemiah's faith in God is greater than his fear of death. It's greater than his fear of the king, an earthly king. And that's why he's so straightforward with his troubled heart. Uh, the gist of Nehemiah's response is to express a desire to honor his ancestors. That, to sum it up, what he, what he says here is, I, I want to go honor my ancestors. And that was wise because the Persians honored their dead uh, as well. So the king, Artaxerxes, can relate at least to an extent, to what Nehemiah is saying here. And the response of King Artaxerxes upon learning what was troubling Nehemiah's heart is to basically ask, what are you asking for? What can I do? What's going on? What do you think we should do about it? And I love Nehemiah's response to this. You know, so often when somebody asks us a question, we're just quick to blurt out an answer and, you know, this is what I want. But instead, Nehemiah prays. Now, I, I don't think he, he fell to his knees to pray. Uh, I don't think it was a lengthy prayer. I don't think he, uh, he closed his eyes or folded his hands or any of those things. You know, I, I don't even think he prayed out loud. He prayed silently and, and quickly before he said what he needed to say. In other words, this was more of a text message prayer than a 46 cents on an envelope you know, that's stuffed with a you know, three-page long letter. Uh, you know, it, it's not like that. It was brief and to the point, just a quick prayer up to God, which I would say is probably the most common type of prayer. And it's okay to do that. You know, so you, you see, I remember when, uh, when Maddie was just a, a, a little girl, um, we'd drive by a, you know, an accident scene, and uh, she'd say, oh, we better pray. And you know, before Christina could respond, Maddie would say, I already prayed. Just shooting up a quick text message prayer. That's what I, I kind of call it. Uh, so without hesitation... Nehemiah, as a result of of this prayer, uh, receives a quick dose of courage and wisdom. Let's continue with verses 5 to 8. We read, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let the letters be given let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass though uh, pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was on me. Have you noticed, between this, this section of, of, the, of the passage and the previous one, that, uh, that Nehemiah has told the king where he wants to go two times, and neither time he mentioned the city of Jerusalem by name. He simply, both times, he simply refers to it as the city of his father's tombs. You see, I, I think 
the reason for that is because Jerusalem had a, a pretty bad reputation among the neighboring nations as a city that was constantly stirring up trouble, uh, constantly revolting against anyone who tried to, uh, to stand over them. And it appears as though the king actually does take some time to think about it. I mean, when we read this, first glance it might seem like it was immediate, but uh, you know, Nehemiah points out here in verse 6 that the queen, he says, and the queen was sitting beside him, just kind of in the middle of nowhere, and so you've got to wonder, why, why did he throw that in there? Why, why does he tell us that the queen is there all of a sudden? Well, some think that he points it out because the queen would be able to influence the king one way or the other. And she gave favor to Nehemiah and thus influenced the king positively. Uh, however, God is the one who granted favor here, not the queen. Um, God was perfectly capable of stirring the king's heart. But maybe he would choose to do so through the queen. Maybe not. We can't be sure. Uh, For what it's worth, I think that the queen is mentioned simply for the sake of showing us that there's a a slight change of scenery. Once she she, uh, comes onto the scene, once she's mentioned, uh, it's later in the day. And the king's had some time to process this request, this, uh, this information that Nehemiah has come to him with. And it's clear that Nehemiah has already been planning. He's already been thinking through this, uh, what's going to be needed. And that's part of the trusting process. Even though he hadn't received an answer either way to his prayer, he apparently had taken the time to figure out uh, how long he'd be gone. And we know uh, that he'd be gone for uh, a whole 12 years. He'd be gone for 12 years. And I don't know, he doesn't tell us how much time he asks for here. Uh, so we don't know what, what amount of time he asked for, but it wouldn't surprise me a whole lot if uh, he asked for less than 12 years and then had to ask for additional time. We, we don't know, but he tells us that he gave the king a definitive timeline. Additionally, Nehemiah is aware of the fact that he's going to need safe travel because he's going through a very hostile area of the world. He knows that he's going to face opposition if he responds to God's calling in his life. And know this, whenever you are called to do the work of God, opposition is almost guaranteed to come up. It's going to show its face. And in this case, there were people who may or, or may not let Nehemiah pass through the land. He may not even live to get through the land, unless, that is, unless he has a letter from the king addressed to the governors of the provinces in the land that he'd have to pass through on his way down to the country, the former country of Judah, where Jerusalem is. And finally, he knew that he would need building supplies and materials, and so he asks that a letter be written specifically requesting the total fulfillment of those needs. And so, yeah, Nehemiah has spent months in prayer, but he's also been trusting God enough to start planning as if God was going to give him a positive answer because he knew that the Lord was stirring his heart. And so maybe during this four months, he consulted with some people who were more experienced in this stuff than he was. Whatever the case, the plan has been drawn up. He has an expectation, knowing what he's going to need ahead of time. And when the opportunity to petition the king comes up, when it finally arose, Nehemiah was ready. He was ready to act. You see, to have good intentions, and to feel God's calling on your life to do something for him is one thing. 
But to act on those intentions is quite another. See, you can, you can see a problem clear as day. You can identify it. You can understand it backwards and forwards. But seeing, identifying, and understanding a problem don't mean a whole lot if it doesn't somehow, some way, eventually get translated into action. You know, people tend to dwell on problems. You know, they'll see a problem and they'll complain about it. Or they'll, they'll gripe, or they'll gossip, or you, you, you know, you know the, the drill. People dwell on problems, but Nehemiah is a great example of going one step beyond dwelling on the problem and actually coming up with a practical solution to the problem. Now, some people will tell you that, you know, if you see a problem, all, your responsibility is just to pray, nothing else. And then there are some people who would say, you know, if you see somebody who has a problem, your responsibility is to act, Nothing else. But Nehemiah, the Nehemiah model, is to, uh, to pray, plan, and act, which, as we saw in our previous study, was Solomon's model as well. Pray, plan, and act. And that's what Nehemiah has done. And to what I imagine would be Nehemiah's surprise, the king says, basically, go for it. All the things that Nehemiah requested, and, and probably some things that don't get mentioned here, they all get a green light. No, no hesitation, no, uh, no conditions, no like, if you'll do this for me, then uh, you know, we can do it sometime. No qualifications, no hesitations, green light. Why? Not because Nehemiah is persuasive. Not because the king is a nice guy. The king gives a green light because God is faithful. And God has a plan. And Nehemiah was the one whose heart was stirred up to both intention and action. And no power in the universe, physical or spiritual, can stand in the way of the fulfillment of God's plan. Nehemiah says he had the good hand of his God upon him. He was meticulous with his planning, he, he, down to the detail. He, he knew what he was going to need. But all of that would have been meaningless if God hadn't gone before him to soften the king's heart and open up this door of opportunity. And so Nehemiah gets permission, protection, and provision. Listen carefully to to, to this part. Listen. If we're serious about repairing and rebuilding parts of our lives or the lives of people that we know where the walls have been torn down, there's vulnerability, susceptibility, this is telling us that we need to think long and hard about the costs and sacrifices we might have to make if we're serious about fixing it. What steps are necessary? What tools are going to be necessary? What habits might need to be broken? What will it honestly take to help us mend those areas of our lives that are preventing us, that are standing in the way from us experiencing the peace, the safety and the freedom that God has intended for us to live in? And are you willing to believe that God is the one in control? And that if God is in control, then nothing can stop you from acting on what he has stirred you to do. If it's really his will, if it's really his calling, there is nothing and there is nobody who can stand in your way. Let's continue, verses 9 and 10. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen 
When Sambalot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. Now the first thing that, that strikes me when I read this, I think the first thing we're kind of supposed to see here, is that even though Nehemiah never asked for a, a military escort, basically, he never asked uh, for anyone to accompany him on this journey, that's the first thing he tells us about his journey, is that he's got these guys escorting him down there. And the great thing is, this, this is always how God's provision works. It's always how it works. It's always more than we need. It's always more than we expect and more than we ask for. But now that you know that, be careful what you pray for. This past week at, uh, at our board meeting, uh, the subject of Victor's green card came up, and here it is, you know, we're in the, the middle of February, and we were told that we would have a, a, a final response to Victor's green card status uh, by December, and so I jokingly said to Victor, Victor, did, did you pray for patience or something? And w- without hesitating, Victor goes, yes, yes, I prayed for patience, and w- we all cracked up, because the thing is, uh, it's been an abundant answer to prayer, hasn't it? <laughs> uh, you know, because the only way to, to learn patience, the only way to learn patience is to have your patience tested and stretched which is something that you probably can't stand if you feel the need to pray for it. So careful what you pray for. And the reason that this entire army is accompanying Nehemiah is because the authority of the king is what's at stake. The king has given permission, and so if anything prevents it, they're challenging the king's authority. They're not challenging Nehemiah so much. Ultimately, they're they're, uh, challenging the king's authority. And so Nehemiah is standing on the authority of the king. And the message here is that if you set out to do the work of God, which he has stirred your heart to do, and you are st- then you are standing on and you are supported by the full authority of Jesus Christ. God answers our prayers, and if our prayers are in accordance with his will, then nothing can stop them from being fulfilled. That doesn't mean, however... Take special note of this. That doesn't mean that there won't be opposition. Sure enough, sure enough, opposition does show up here as two bad guys named Sambalot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite show up on the scene. And if you ask me, Tobiah is way too close to, to my name for, for comfort. Uh, we're, we're one letter apart. Um, anyway, Sambalot was, was most likely from uh, an area referred to as Bet Horon, uh, which was approximately 12 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Not far, a day's journey from Jerusalem. And no wonder that he would oppose Nehemiah's work. Increased safety and strength for Jerusalem would mean a stronger and more, uh, more safe Jerusalem, which would mean less land and less property to plunder for the Horonites. And Tobiah, the Ammonite, stood with him. Uh, he, he was an official. I, I'm, I'm guessing that Sambalot was kind of like a bodyguard. He was probably a pretty rough guy because only, uh, only Tobiah is mentioned as being an official. Uh, he stood with Sambalot at the very least because the Ammonites had always had a beef with Israel. They had always hated the Jews. Now, it's important that we see all of this, this this opposition that he comes up against, it's important that we see this as just normal Christianity. This is normal. This is not out of the ordinary at all. Every single one of us who has ever tried to do anything at all for God should be able to identify 
with Nehemiah at this point. He's trying to do the work that God has stirred his heart and called him to do, even though it's risky, and even though it involves great personal sacrifice. And sure enough, some type of opposition shows up. And I'm tempted, I'm not going to go all the way here, I'm tempted to go so far as to say that if you are faithful in carrying out God's calling in your life, you can almost guarantee that there's going to be opposition, and that if you don't encounter some type of opposition, it might be time to question the calling. Now, if you remember, two years ago when I got here, the week that I got here, as a matter of fact, a man and his wife showed up for the first time as well. And within a month, I was uh, receiving vicious emails from this guy. I I mean, they were were mean, very mean-spirited. And he was complaining about my sermons. He was complaining about the way I preached. He was complaining about the content of the sermons. He was complaining about my lack of vision. And at first, you know, I responded to, to every email that he sent. But after a while, I started realizing that it was really starting to to have a negative impact on me. And I I saw that he was just seriously nitpicking. And he he was just emailing me for the sake of of looking for a fight, looking to argue, and that there was a danger that I would be acting out of fear of his criticism rather than out of a fear of God. And so what did I do? I stopped even opening the emails. I stopped even reading them at all. The moment that I saw that I had an email from him, I'd stop and I'd pray for him specifically right before I deleted the email so that I'd never be tempted to go there. I I, I just completely stopped. And when I stopped playing his game, he resorted to going to some of you guys. I know that because I've talked to you guys. He he started talking about me uh, and criticizing me behind my back. And uh, when you guys didn't take place in it, when, uh, when he didn't, uh, get a response, the response that he wanted from you guys, uh, he finally left. Uh, he, he, he just took his ball and went home. And this is what I'm talking about. There will be opposition when you respond to God's calling in your life. Be prepared for it. And know this, the enemy cannot dissuade you or stop you. He can't, if he can't dissuade you or stop you, and you're married, he'll go after your spouse. So pray for the protection of your spouse and put safeguards in place to protect your spouse. Expect it, but don't fear it. Expect it, but don't fear it, because God will see you through it. And in the face of opposition, you'll learn to trust him and see his provision in ways that you have never seen before. You'll see God's provision in ways that you would never have imagined or expected. But know that it is going to happen. Because there is a a literal enemy of God who wants to get in the way of God's work. Let's continue. Verses 11 and 12. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. And what we see here is that Nehemiah is simply taking a few days to, uh, to get some R&R, some, some rest and recovery, three days. Uh, because he was expecting opposition, though, he's still expecting opposition. He keeps the ideas that God was putting into his mind, into his heart, to himself. Before anyone knew what he was there for, though, he was going to have to uh, take a chance to assess the situation for himself. He was going to have to get out 
and make a decision one way or another. But how wise was it to get some rest before he made a big decision? Man, we make stupid decisions when we're tired. We make stupid assessments when we're tired. We, we, we lose control when we're tired. So he gets some rest. And so after three days of rest, Nehemiah gets up in the middle of the night, gets on his animal, and he takes a little trip into town. Let's continue, verses 13 to 16. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and on to the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. So what we see here is that by the moonlight, because that's when he's going to have the greatest amount of secrecy and privacy, he's going to be able to see this stuff for himself. By the moonlight, he goes out and he sees that the conditions really are dismal. Hannah and I wasn't exaggerating. Hannah and I came back with an accurate report. The whole place is in disarray, and the gates are burned to the ground, just as Hannah and I had reported. And apparently the place is such a mess, and the walls were in such horrible ruin, that he couldn't even ride his animal through the city to get an up-close assessment. And so what does he do? He, He finds a high point so that he can look down on it. Now, thanks to television and the movies, we're probably all familiar with the way Alcoholics Anonymous works and how they require that each addict be as honest as possible with the reality of their addiction. You know, when a person goes up before the group, they have to openly, honestly confess, uh, I am so-and-so and I am an alcoholic. And the reason that they do this is because they know there's this psychological principle that a person who is honest about the ruin and the destruction in their life is more likely to do something about it. If they're willing to admit it, there's a greater chance that they will actually do something about it. And it's vitally important if you're seeking to restore something that's spiritually broken as well, that you be as open and as honest about it as you possibly can be. You know, I became pretty good friends with a pastor at a, at a big church in Arkansas. And I'll never forget, and I'm sure Christina won't forget either, how he used to introduce himself to people. He, first of all, he, he'd introduce him, himself as a pastor and, and by name to somebody. And the next thing that he would say is, I'm a pornography addict. And he'd go through the story of how he was in ministry at this church for, for years, and his wife one day walked in and caught him watching porn. And he's totally open and straightforward about the damage that that caused in his life. He's totally open and straightforward about how much that, that hurt his wife, the strain that it put on his family. And, you know, at first I didn't get it. I was like, man, what's the point of this? You know, all he's doing is kind of drawing attention to his addiction. But over time, I saw that it really served two purposes. First of all, it shatters, shatters the perfect pastor image that a lot of people, especially in the South, tend to have. Oh, I, I just gave myself away, didn't I? Yeah, there's no perfect pastor, but, but telling people that, let people know immediately, wow, he's, he's broken just like everybody else. And secondly, his openness and his honesty about his brokenness freed others up to be open with him as well. 
It gave them permission to be open with him. And what Nehemiah is doing here is just recording an honest, open assessment of the destruction that he sees all around him. Because if he's less than honest, he'll be less than successful in repairing it. So with an understanding uh, and honest assessment of the problem, he's now ready to diagnose the problem and, and recruit some help. Let's continue with verses 17 and 18. Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. Man, what, a, what a great picture. What a, what a great example of exactly how God's work is meant to be carried out. Not in isolation, but in community. Together. You know, we, we have no idea where this takes place. We're, we're not sure exactly where they are. Uh, we're not exactly sure when it was. You know, was it the next day, the next week? You know, we can't be sure. And we also don't know who was there. Was he just speaking to the leaders? Well, you know, who, who was he speaking to? Everybody? You know, we don't know. Um, but at some point, he forthrightly points out that the ruin is all around them. Look around you. There's ruin everywhere. And based on what we've learned in this book and what we can gather from Ezra and, and some, other, uh, some other books, we know that the ruin has existed for over 100 years. And so Nehemiah is basically, in essence, saying, don't you think it's long enough? Don't you think it's time for the place where God wants to dwell to not be in ruins? Don't you think it's time to repair the place where God wants to dwell? And so he tells them some good news. By God's grace and his hand, we're going to repair this mess. We can do it. He's called me here. We're going to do it. The good news that the world needs to hear is that there is ruin all around us. And for a person who hasn't yet accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, they are still in ruins as well. God wants to dwell there. He created that place, that person, to dwell in them. But sin and destruction have left their lives in shambles. And how is that good news? The good news is that despite the fact that we are in ruins, despite the fact that the gates of our lives have been burned to the ground and we don't deserve God's mercy, he sent someone to take care of the problem. He sent Jesus to bear the wrath of God for us so that whosoever believes in Jesus as the Son of God, trusting in him alone for their salvation, will be born again and receive eternal life, and God will dwell in that person, working with them to repair the ruin. So Nehemiah sees ruin all around. And if you look around at the people you know who don't know Jesus, who don't trust in Jesus, who haven't made Jesus their Lord, you'll see spiritually what Nehemiah saw physically. But again, don't be surprised when opposition pops up. Let's finish up this chapter with verses 19 and 20. But when Sambalot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion right 
or memorial here in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah has recruited some help. Look who else has been recruiting some help. In the first encounter, there are just two guys. Now there are three. And in the first encounter, they voiced their displeasure. But now they're stepping it up a notch. Now they are showing how much they despise what's going on. And are you wondering why Nehemiah didn't just pull out one of the letters? You know, hey, you guys have seen this before. Let's show it to Geshem also. See, I have the king's permission. Why didn't he do that? It's because this isn't a political issue. This is a spiritual issue. Because whenever God's people declare, I will rise up and repair, the enemy of God will respond by saying, then I will arise and wreak havoc. I will bring destruction. I will bring opposition. But know this. Know this. Nothing, nothing, nothing can come against us that God does not either allow or cause. The truth is, Opposition makes us stronger. Opposition causes us to seek refuge in the Lord. I mean, think of it this way. How could the Seahawks be as good as they are if they were the only team in the league? If there was no opposition, if they just showed up on Sunday and had a party because, hey, we won, we have no opposition. I mean, we'd kind of say, yeah, congratulations. You know, okay, you got a couple Super Bowl rings for nothing. You know, you guys are the only team. Opposition gives them incentive to train. It makes them better. Why would they even bother training if if there was no opposition? And sometimes these are the conditions under which God wants us to repair the ruin in our lives. In the face of hard opposition, for the sake of strengthening our faith in him. You see, there, there is no danger in facing opposition. There's no danger in it. You don't have to be afraid. There's nothing for you to fear when the enemy of God tries to get you to back down from what God has called you to do. The time to fear is when you think that God has stirred your heart and called you to do something, and you're not even a blip on the enemy's radar. That's the time to start thinking, whoa, am I I doing the right thing? See, our intention to work for God, to do good things for God, for the kingdom, must translate into action. It starts with a stirred heart to which we respond with sorrowful prayer. Then comes an opportunity which we have to plan for. And then comes the hard part. Action in the face of opposition. And this is how God changes us. This is how God transforms us. This is how he leads us away and, uh, and heals us from the ruin and destruction in our lives. The enemy has no portion, no right, no memorial in our lives, because we completely belong to God. Every ounce of our being, every fiber of our being belongs to God, and so the enemy has no right to any of it. But know with utmost confidence that the God of heaven will give us success, not because of our gratefulness or our greatness or our faithfulness, but because of God's greatness and his faithfulness. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your faithfulness to us. Every single one of us is in a state state of ruin and destruction, and we know, Lord, that you either want to heal 
that ruin and destruction, or you are in the, the midst of, of the ruin and destruction, healing it with us, healing the, the destruction in our lives. Thank you for sending your son to take the wrath that we deserved. Thank you for being a God of great mercy and compassion, but thank you for being a God of incredible faithfulness, a God who is true to his promises forever. We thank you, Lord, that you are so faithful to us. Teach us to be faithful to you. Teach us to be faithful to your calling in our lives, Lord. I pray that you would make your calling in our lives evident to each one of us, and may our work reflect your greatness. Even in the face of opposition, remind us, Lord, the enemy has no right, no portion of the place you want to dwell. May your, may your name be glorified through our lives and through what we do for you. In Jesus' name. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper. in the springtime open in bloom is that moment the sun breaks through a stormy afternoon stars in the night sky rain on the grass such beautiful moments they'll pass more high great deep more beautiful high great deep more beautiful high great deep more beautiful more beautiful take me deeper take me deeper Lord take me deeper take me deeper Lord Lord. you are so much more than I'll ever know take me deeper Where you want me to go You are so much greater Than I'll ever dream There's more to this life Than I see